title of this sermon, The Way of Life. Let's read from Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 15. And the Lord God took Adam, and he placed or rested him in the garden of Eden to work it and to watch it or to guard it. And the Lord God commanded Adam, saying, From all the trees of the garden you shall certainly eat. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from it. For in the day you eat from it, you shall surely die. This is the reading of God's holy, inerrant word. You know, in thinking about that topic, the way of life, there's no possible question that we could ask that's more personally or more personal importance to us than the question of where will I go when I die? How do I know that I'll go to heaven? Or how can I avoid going to hell? And fortunately, I love the fact that we have Jesus' words which give us such a clear and direct answer to this question. A lawyer came up to him in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, and he asked him directly, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? How would you answer that lawyer's question? What's really at stake in getting that question right or getting it wrong? Jesus gives us probably the most surprising answer that I could anticipate. Jesus says, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Or what is your interpretation of it? And he answered the lawyer. You shall, or rather, he, the lawyer, answered Jesus. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And I'm kind of talking over to the side here, so I'm going to straighten that up so I actually look at you when I'm talking. Helps me. A little mental thing. Are you surprised by his answer? Why did Jesus respond in this way? Jesus' response and understanding his answer here takes us back to this original relationship with Adam in the garden, if we're going to come to an answer. He's talking about what, and this guy's question, just like all good answers, 
really depend on the question that is asked. Because the man asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the reality is, is that from the beginning to the end, the Bible is very, very clear. If you want to earn your way to heaven, God requires perfect, perpetual obedience. That is the way of life. And that's exactly how it was laid out to Adam. And we all kind of know this, especially when we hear what that obedience looks like in Scripture. That obedience that's laid out for us comes from Deuteronomy 6, comes from Leviticus 18, uh, verse 15, or rather verse 5. It looks like loving the Lord with all our hearts, all our minds, with everything that we are. And loving our neighbor just as much as we love ourselves. Don't we know in our hearts that we're all commanded to do this? Don't we all know that our life should be lived in light of that? Is that what Adam understood in the garden? By the time we end with our sermon, or my sermon, as we go through our text, we're going to see that while this is the way of life as it's laid out for humanity, this way of life for sinful people is an impossibility. But let's go back to the beginning. How does God talk about the way of life in our text? Well, first he talks about it being made possible by a relationship. We see how God encourages him, Adam, in this task. And then it ends off by we get to see that the way of life laid out for Adam really is obedience. Which, like I said, might be surprising and might sound like, and it should sound like, pretty bad news for sinners like you and me. But let's look at this first step. In this process and understanding this understanding that every human being is responsible to be obedient to God just like Robert just read you are either in Adam or you are in Christ there's a parallel that's set up that's set up there and we see that Adam acts on behalf of all the people he represents his children his offspring. And by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And the parallel to that is that by the one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. What we're dealing here with is that with Adam, he had some sort of relationship with God which by how Adam behaved, which was disobedience, by one sin, it resulted in all the people who he represented in their death. 
and their sinfulness. And the corollary there is by Jesus, by being in Christ, by the one man's act of righteousness in the death and resurrection, those who trust in him will be made or are made righteous. This relationship that Adam had with God in the garden has often been defined in terms of covenant. And we don't have too many covenants today, do we? We really only have one covenant today, which is marriage. And what does that relationship look like? What is a covenant? Well, maybe on the most basic of terms, a covenant is just simply an agreement between two or more people. We actually see Scripture refer to God's relationship with Adam in the garden as a covenant in Hosea 6-7, where he's affirming to Israel that he desires steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He says, though, in verse 7, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. So the Bible speaks of this relationship that Adam had as an agreement between two parties. Between two people, God and Adam. But we don't have to look at certain proof texts around Scripture and how later authors of Scripture refer to this text. We actually see it in the text itself. Specifically, when God makes a command. That's what we just read in this Scripture, right? We just read of God's command to Adam. And in this command, he said, you shall certainly eat of every tree of the garden. By the way, every tree was made delightful to the eyes, good for food. And one of those every trees that God said that you, Adam could eat of was from the tree of life. But the command had something more specific. The command was, the main emphasis on it was not what he was allowed to eat, but specifically the tree that he was not allowed to eat. When he said, but you shall certainly not eat from the tree of knowledge. And knowledge of what? Good and evil. I think it's helpful to talk about this in terms of this relationship a covenant for a couple of different reasons. One is if we think about the, uh, God giving this specific command to Adam, when he gives this command, he's, he's making a formally binding relationship here with him. This is not information which he would have gained from living in nature. Adam placed in the garden would have seen all the trees that God gave and he needed an additional piece of information that one of the trees that is delightful to the eyes and good for food 
is out of bounds for him. Eve, when she saw the tree, was right in Genesis 3. She did truly see it for what it was. A tree that fruit was pleasing and was a delight to the eyes and would be good for food. This is extra information. And I think when we think of this in terms of covenant, especially helps us to understand the commands. First of all, if we hear God say, do not eat from the tree, does Adam have the option in this case to say, you know what? That's an interesting observation, God. But I'm not interested. I think I'm going to go over here and do something else. No. Once God gave him the command, it bound him to an agreement with God. God as his master and Adam as his servant. Now, Adam did not need to, by nature, need some sort of formal arrangement to tell him that he needed to be obedient to God and to his commands. We're told in Luke 17, verse 10, that servants who do what is their duty, they don't deserve reward. They're just doing what they're meant to be, what they're called to do. If your children make their bed after they've slept in it, they're not, they don't deserve from you or earn from you a payment in the form of some sort of uh, allowance, thank you. They don't deserve that. If you give it to them, that's just you blessing them. And that would be the arrangement of it. If you make your bed, then I will bless you with an allowance. That's why God entered into this. God entered into this and promised him to eat from everything, including the tree of life. God has been blessing him from the very beginning. Adam has been set up for success, living in a paradise of heaven on earth. God, Adam has all his needs provided for, and God did not have to give him eternal life, but he chose to put in the middle of the garden the tree of life. This tells us a couple things. First, Adam in and of himself was being taught that he is not immortal in and of himself. God did not make a superman in the garden. He made a regular, ordinary man. One whose life depended on God from beginning till the end. And the, also part, the other portion of this formal arrangement is that God is not making a relationship or agreement just with Adam. But covenants, as they are throughout the entire Bible, whether they're made with Noah, Adam, or I already said Adam, that's who we're talking about. Noah, Abraham, David, or Jesus himself, it has reference to the representative and all the people who they represent. Always. That's why Noah 
who found righteousness in the sight of God by faith, escaped, his family escaped the flood. Not on account of their righteousness, but because of their relationship with their father, Noah. The promises of God being held out to the children of Abraham for the same reason, and we could just keep going. And I forgot Moses. Moses is also an important one. What God is establishing is an official binding relationship with Adam as a public person. As a person who represents all his children. And once again, just like covenants, we don't have many representative relationships, do we, in this world? But we see a glimpse of it when we think about our sports teams. When UVA fans, I'm trying to, I'm not really in, I don't follow too many sports. Yes, we, if you haven't figured that out, you probably are figuring it now. But if you are a UVA fan and they lose their game, don't you speak about how we have lost? You aren't good enough to be on that football team. They're way better than you. They're set up for success. They're younger than you, most of you. They can play football better than you. You don't want to play on the field. You want a strong representative. And when they win, you win. And when they lose, you lose. That's the dynamic that we're given in Romans chapter 5. You are either have Adam as your father, and guess what? He lost the game. In belonging to him, outside of Christ, there's no hope in this world because your representative has lost, and now you have enough sins to deal with anyways. But if you have Christ as your representative, he has won. What God promises to look at is not you in your lack, your sin, your shortcomings, or the shortcomings of your first father. But what God looks at is what Christ has done. You know, we have a lot of colloquial phrases and a lot of Christian jargon when we're witnessing to unbelievers. Don't we? There's a lot of theological shorthand that we do. One thing that this should correct us of is at least one, I think, dangerous way of talking to people who know nothing about the Bible. We often talk about in terms of calling people to salvation, that we're calling them to have a relationship with God or have a relationship with Jesus. You know, there's a certain sense in which that's true in a shorthand kind of way. We use that to talk about relation, other types of relationships. Like if we see a couple, we say that couple is in a relationship. And what we don't mean by it is those two individuals are friends. When we say that they're in a relationship, we're referring to their, the romantic relationship. That will hopefully terminate in marriage, in loving commitment, in a bond. That they will voluntarily make. Better be voluntary. Just FYI. When we talk about a relationship with God. 
we need to make sure that we explain our terms. There's a sense in which everyone, every one of Adam, Adam himself and all his children have a relationship with God. But what kind of relationship is it? Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we are enemies of God. That's the kind of relationship that we're all born into after Adam. And not only that, but Romans chapter 1 tells us that we don't just have a relationship with God, but Romans chapter 1 tells us, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. We need to clarify and not just simply use jargon. And we have to be very careful to explain everything that we say. If we're talking to people, we need to say that what we're calling people to is a reconciled relationship, not just any relationship. That they might know God as their Father and their Savior. That's the kind of relationship we are calling people into. But in this conversation, when we think about, especially as we go back to the beginning to see the nature of that original relationship, there's probably two big questions that come to mind. The first one is, if God is so loving, why did he put this tree in the garden that could possibly lead to the fall? Why would he do that? And maybe the second question is, it sure seems arbitrary not to eat from the fruit of a tree that looks good? Is God laying out a baked apple pie, setting it on the table and asking, just don't eat it? Tempting people to sin, or at least tempting Adam to sin? May it never be. That's what we've been reading in James chapter 1, haven't we? That let no one accuse God of causing them to sin. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, but he himself tempts no one. So what's going on here? What is happening? Well, what we're seeing here is God encouraging this way is actually the opposite sort of situation. God is not tempting Adam, but he's, a he's encouraging him to obedience every step of the way. And if you want to see how God encourages Adam, think about all the trees that he's planted. First, he's planted every tree in this garden orchard. Every tree is for God, is of his provision. Every tree speaks to God's goodness, his kindness, his generosity, and his love towards a man he just made to bless. God had showed Adam evidence that he loves him. And the fact of all these trees, and then there's two particular trees. The tree of life. What is the tree of life doing there but to encourage Adam to obedience? What's Adam's reward for obedience? 
What's his reward for seeking after God? To eat of the fruit of the tree of life. After Adam sins, we'll see that God cuts him off, lest he lives forever in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. He's encouraging him with a positive. Obey and you will earn eternal life. That's what's being held out to Adam. And you know what? Adam, by his nature, by his natural capacities, was encouraged by the fact that God made him able to do this. This is a sense in which Adam is unlike us. We know this. First, we know we're unlike Adam in the sense of we don't have this tree in life that we're not supposed to eat of that will curse our life. There's no food like that. But also, Adam is unlike us in the fact that when we are born, our sin comes naturally. No one has to teach us how to lie, how to cheat, how to steal, to hate one another. That's a natural proclivity. That's an aspect of the desires of our own heart. But Adam was created with a capacity to either sin or not sin. He was created good. And maybe we could even take this a step farther. That Adam was created by nature, not only seeing his dependence on God, but he was equipped for the task and the responsibilities. What did God make Adam in? His own image. The image of God was referring to his station in the garden, his office, his responsibilities, but also his gifts. He was equipped with the mental faculties and the physical capabilities of exercising dominion over the earth. But also, in the relation to this text, Adam was also equipped with something else. With a heart that had God's law written on it. God's law written on it. Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 15 says something very important. Talking about the law, he speaks to the fact, he will get to the fact that Jews are under law, they know they're sinning, and that condemns them. But what about those people who don't have God's law, don't have God's standard? God still judges them, but there's no condemnation if there's no law. Until the government put up a speed limit sign, you wouldn't have been held accountable to whatever that speed limit is. Romans chapter 2, verse 14 says, When the Gentiles, that is all the rest of the nations, the non-Jews, who have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. Their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. What Paul is pointing out here is that written and engraved on the human conscience as made in the image of God, we all know the difference between right and wrong. We can look at pagan societies who legislate 
Do not kill. Do not steal. Where do they get this impulse and this desire to curb evil in their society? How do they even know the difference between good and evil? It's because God has written it on the human heart. What's speaking about here is that what Adam had and what all his children have is a conscience. And that conscience doesn't have a detailed prescription like we'll get in a summary in the Ten Commandments later. But it's the same summary that's engraved on the human conscience that we see that Jesus taught. Jesus, when he taught the command to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, the law of love is defined as obedience to God's commandments. It's like it's engraved on our hearts, and we know our conscience, and our conscience either excuses our sin, and we violate our conscience, or we or it accuses us, and we listen to our conscience, and when we sin and do what is wrong, even if you're not a Christian, you'll feel guilty about it to some degree or another, depending on the level of suppression of your conscience and how much you've hardened your heart. That's the natural abilities and capabilities of Adam. He did not need to be told by creation to love God and to love neighbor, to love his wife that will be given to him. But he did need this relationship to tell him a specific command. And the specific command told Adam the way of life was by obedience. And we see this even in Jesus when he says in John chapter 14, verse 15, Do you love me? Keep my commandments. Love being defined by, if you want to know, how do you love Jesus? How do you love God? How do you love your neighbor? A good, quick way is to look at the Ten Commandments. It's a law that is given in a summary form, in a written down way so that you can examine it more closely, you can see how well you're doing at loving God and loving your neighbor. This is the basic command and the impulse of every heart. We all understand that we should love God. That's why every human society that we find, we find them worshiping some God somewhere. And what else do we find in human societies? We see the desire to love neighbor, but you know what? They don't love them as they love themselves. They have double standards when they apply it to other people. And you know what? That condemnation falls upon us as well. This is not an arbitrary law. Although not eating from the tree is not something that was bad in and of itself, There's no perpetual principle of not eating some particular food. Although for a time, the people of the Israelites did have also dietary restrictions. Same thing applies. What makes something right and what makes things wrong? It's God. 
God defines right and wrong. What was this tree of knowledge? The knowledge of good and evil. It's the call, ultimately, what defines good or evil is obedience. It's defined by obedience to God. Satan is going to tempt this couple to make their own definition of right and wrong outside of obedience to God's commandments. And you know what? They will discover right and wrong by experience of eating this tree. They'll experience, they'll learn by experience the good from what they've lost. And they'll learn by experience the bad from all the sin and miseries they experience. But the definition of good and evil is, by definition, defined by God. One of my favorite quotes by R.C. Sproul was one of the things that he said at the very end of his life. He was in a Q&A session, and he asked a question that maybe you have thought of when you read this text. He was asked a question, since God is slow to anger and patient, then why was his punishment so severe and long-lasting? Can you sympathize with that? If God is so patient and loving and has set up Adam for success, giving him signs of even a threat of what he would do if he disobeyed, the negative end, and a positive eternal life as a gift of God for obedience. Then why does he seem to have a punishment that's so harsh? Just eating a fruit? R.C. Sproul responded in a way I think that only he could. He said, this creature from the dirt defied the creator of the world, world right after God promised that he would surely die if he ate from it. Instead of dying, God covered his sins. And he did experience the effects of the fall. He did experience the curse. But the greatest part of the curse was not laid on Adam, but was eventually laid on the Lord Jesus Christ. Severe. And he said, what's wrong with you people? And he said, I'm serious. What's wrong with you people? We, this is the problem with the church today. We don't know who God is or who we are. The wages of sin is death. By our standard, we always count ourselves as good enough. Not bad enough that God would punish us. But God's standard is not our standard. Our standard of right and wrong is tempted by self-interest. God's is objective. God's is equally applied to every human being. And it is perfect, perpetual obedience. Because God is God and we are not. And that laid out for Adam, is the way of life. 
And Adam is given every reason to obey. Hasn't God been good to him? Why would he question God's goodness, God's love? What Adam was to live in is what we see throughout Scripture as the way of life. To live in the fear of the Lord. Isn't this what Proverbs 1, chapter 1, verse 17 tells us? That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Knowledge. For the fool despises wisdom and instruction. Chapter 14, verse 27. The fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. One may easily, or one may turn away from the snares of death. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 33. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom. And humility comes before honor. Adam was called in this command to recognize God is God and he is not. His whole life is built upon dependence upon God for everything he has and the life he has. And the God who gave him life has every right to take it away from him for disobedience. That's what sin is. Sin is defined as any transgression of or even lack of conformity unto God's law, God's ways. This fourth point is really a conclusion. If this is the way of life, this is not good news. Because Romans 3.23 tells us we have all fallen short of God's glory. We've all fallen short of perfect, perpetual obedience. And we have not just, we've not taken Adam's sin and somehow lived a perfect life ever since, and that's the only sin that we're held culpable for, is Adam's. No, we've added innumerable sins on top of that. What sort of judgment do we deserve based on this, the way of life that's being led before Adam in a covenant of works? We're seeing that while earning life by this way is now impossible, Christ made another way. What's the way of life for the sinner, the person who broke God's law, who rendered himself incapable of achieving salvation by this original relationship of the covenant of works, which every human being is responsible for fulfilling? as the creature, and as in relation to God. Well, we're told. We're told the way of life. Uh, Jesus, in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, he tells his disciples, Let your heart not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I wouldn't, I would, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. Thomas responds to this and says, Lord, in verse 5, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? 
He's confused because Jesus is speaking about going to heaven. The promise of giving them eternal life. And Thomas says, I don't know where you're going and we don't know the way. What is this way? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Galatians 3 verse 10 explains the dynamic this way. For all who rely on works, the works of the law, are under a curse. Read into it, Adam. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. What is the way that sinners are saved? What is the way for life for the sinner that we call people to? We call people to the only hope of life that they have in this sinful world, which is through not our works, not our goodness, not what we can achieve, but Christ, His goodness, what He has done in His purpose, in His work, on the behalf of all who believe in him. You know, when I talk to believers, I give them the benefit of the doubt. When they say they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe them. Unless their fruit so explicitly talks in the opposite direction, that it kind of forces in a life of unrepentance to show that they're not believers. But while I give you the benefit of the doubt, I also know the other side of that. People are really good at not only deceiving others, but also deceiving themselves. Don't be deceived. Remember that original question? How would you have answered it? Would you have said... I think I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a good person. If that's your inclination, you are trying to get heaven by the works of the law. Look instead to Christ. The question we need to be, or the answer we need to be ready and able to give to other people and speak to our own hearts is my hope of heaven is not built upon me. But it's upon Jesus Christ and his worthiness. Choose life. Don't choose death. Choose life by trusting in Jesus Christ. It's as simple as that. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word we thank you for revealing to us God's law. A law that tells us to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. Lord, we thank you that you show us by your law not just what we should do, but if we're honest with ourselves, you've shown us what we failed to do. 
And thanks be to God that you have revealed in Christ our only hope in life and death is belonging to Jesus. And O oh Lord, if we are clinging or thinking of ourselves as good, trying to live and trying to earn heaven by our works, by the covenant of works, may any person who's not trusting in Christ and who's trusting in that path May they this morning have their hearts convicted by your word that that's a fool's errand. To instead live in the fear of the Lord, listening to the Lord, knowing that he is our God and he has revealed to us his love for sinners in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And may they do the only thing they can do to earn eternal life. It's by trusting in the works of another. May you, Lord, work by your spirit to cause people to reach out to you in faith, to see their sin and to see your greatness. And may they, this, even this morning, even today, may you, may they reach out in faith to Christ. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. If you will stand with me. Let us stand before a holy God and offer him our praises, praises he is due.